ground beef is actually a very nutrient-dense source of meat, especially if it's like the grass-fed, grass-finished. Liver has basically every nutrient and vitamin that you need. All the things that we know lead to that soil health is eroding at such a fast pace that we can't quantify how much time is left. We oftentimes think that technology is the savior. Man's ego to think that we have the answers to what Mother Nature did so well for so many eons is just the ultimate testament to how sometimes batshit crazy we can be. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, you are going to absolutely love this episode today with Jana Breslin and Evan DeMarco. I can't even describe how much I enjoyed the conversation. I am so passionate about regenerative agriculture, the actual implications of our farming systems today, and what that means for not only our health, but the planet. And we dived deep, deep, deep into so many things. And it's really something that I think can be so confusing because you hear arguments on all sides and it's really hard to know just what to trust and what to think. And I think you guys will find today's conversation so enlightening. We go into so many topics, the role of people in the food system, how to actually regenerate the soil, the ethics of eating animals, whether or not humans are actually omnivores, what labels actually mean, whether or not you should support local, the implications of Impossible and Beyond Burger, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. I am so thrilled because Evan and Jana have an incredible, incredible offer for my audience. So you can actually get 40% off your first box and ground beef for life. Yes, that is 40% off your first box and ground beef for life. Just use the coupon code Melanie Avalon at regenerativepastures.com. That's the coupon code Melanie Avalon at regenerativepastures.com. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash regenerativepastures. The show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying the show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. And it is the most best way to support the show. If you ever have a moment to subscribe and or write a brief review in Apple Podcasts, it helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. 
Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Jana and Evan of Regenerative Pastures. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is about a topic I am personally obsessed with, very passionate about, and a topic that I've talked a lot about on this show, and a topic that I think is, well, very debated and just very confusing. And it's all sort of like a few topics. So that is the role of meat in our diet and our health versus like an entirely plant-based diet, as well as the role of sustainable agriculture. What does that actually practically look like? What is sustainable agriculture? How does meat affect the environment? How does it affect our health? How does it affect the planet? So many things. And I will just say that because I do a lot of interviews on this podcast and a lot of different perspectives and opinions on. And I personally myself even get really confused when it comes to all of this. I mean, just even sitting down and like looking at the scientific studies and data and points and everything, it seems like all sides can make 
all of their cases. So I was super thrilled when two incredible human beings reached out to me. That is Jana Breslin and Evan DeMarco. They have a farm called Regenerative Pastures. And so they have their own farm and they also work with farmers to create a direct-to-consumer subscription-based regenerative process that we will talk all about in this show today. So they reached out. I was obviously super down and well, I was just talking to them a little bit before this and then just in the initial pitch that I got. They're very spirited and have a lot of opinions. And so I am just really, really looking forward to this conversation. So Jana and Evan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, thanks, Melanie. Thanks for having us. So to start things off, I've been wondering this ever since you guys reached out. I am dying to know your backstory. I mean, because it takes a lot, I think, to do what you're doing, start a farm. (laughs) So were you always into regenerative agriculture? When did that start? How did you guys meet? I just want to know. I know there's a lot going on. Yeah. So Evan and I met a couple years ago. We've both been in the health and wellness space for many, many years. I've had a social media following and have done many things with like fitness magazines and, you know, bodybuilding shows and a lot of like, you know, health and wellness categories. And so for me, I actually had some health issues that really inspired me to really dive deep into how I can optimize my body. And it really started after I got a cancer diagnosis and my body just seemed like it was betraying me, failing me. And I was like, okay, I'm committing everything, all of my time, all of my effort to find out what I can do to optimize my health. This comes down to nutrition, our movement, our mindset, our lifestyle, so many things like that. So Evan and I met and We obviously had just a ton of synergy and it really has kind of evolved, but no, neither of us really have any experience in the regenerative space or like, I mean, not experience, but we did not grow up on ranches and farms. This is not something that it's in our backstory. So this has been definitely a very kind of like inspiring journey that very much, we basically just found that it was so important for us to focus on our food and how we're interacting with our environment. Yeah, and and I think to elaborate on that, Jana and I began Complete Human, which is a digital content platform and dietary supplement business about three years ago. And part of that was this recognition that we needed to continually optimize the human condition. We, you know, a lot of people talk about biohacking. We say bio-optimize because I just don't like the term hacking. Uh, It's never a good thing. But in that, we're always talking about supplements. We're always talking about working out. We're talking about mindset. But we've always, I think, as an industry really shied away from talking about how important our food is in this whole health and wellness journey. And so along the way in this digital content place, one of our friends called us up and he's like, hey, would you guys like to do a documentary on regenerative agriculture? And our first response is, what the hell is regenerative agriculture? So he sends over this whole data dump of stuff. And that was like Alan Savory's TED Talk, really kind of getting into like the kiss the ground movement, looking at all of the different scientific research that has evolved in the space of regenerative agriculture. And so after just geeking out on it for, you know, like a week, we called him back and we said, hey, we don't want to just do a documentary on this. We actually want to get really involved. We recognize how powerful regenerative agriculture is in really changing the entire trajectory of the planet. So his response was, well, do you want to buy a USDA processing facility? And we're like, sure, why not? And so we did that in Cody, Wyoming. And you know, the joke is, is we've wanted to kick them in the nuts every day since then, because buying a processing plant is a, it's a labor of love. It's not economically viable. 
and and this is really one of the things that we're going to talk about in this podcast is how much we've marginalized the people in this country who produce our food and that's from you know the people who process our animals the people who grow our vegetables and our fruits and so in this we've really started to understand the whole model the entire value chain of our food supply and how broken it is. I mean, that led us, of course, to recognizing that by optimizing that, by owning the processing facility, by owning the ranches, by working directly with the farmers and cutting out all of these middlemen, the brokers, the the auction houses, you know, the people in New York who are trading cows as a commodity who've probably never even seen a live cow, we can now start to really have a significant impact in how we eat as a country how we take care of the people who manufacture our food, and then how we start to look at the food the way that we once did, which is with a little more reverence than we do. And and I think, again, as this podcast unfolds, one of the things that we're going to really hammer home is how disconnected we are from our food supply and how through the process of regenerative agriculture, we can develop that connection. We can reconnect with our food supply and understand how important it is to the health of ourselves as individuals and the health of the planet. Well, first of all, Jana, how did everything go with your cancer diagnosis? It went good. I mean, literally ever since I just dove into how I can help myself in, in all ways, you know, and I'm sure you understand this as well, but it's not just the nutrition and the workouts, right? It's it's our mindset. It's, it's our lifestyle. It's our relationships and, you know, our relationships with ourselves. And I think that especially when we're, when we're bombarded with our toxic environment, there's a lot of things that we need to do to help heal ourselves. And I think when you support the body as a whole, everything starts working, you know, a lot better. So ever since then, things have been much better for me. Thank you for asking. Awesome. No, that's amazing. It's so interesting. Do you guys know Farmer Lee Jones? Yes. Yes. Not not personally, but... You guys should meet him because he's like the most passionate, inspiring person. Like he's the person that you talk to him and you're just like smiling. But I was just thinking about that interview because when he came on, I don't remember what he said at the beginning, but the first question I asked him was what you were saying was sparking in my head. So I'm going to ask it again. It's a societal question because you're talking all about the role of all of these people and processes that are involved in our food system and how, you know, we just don't, we don't see any of that. So like America, this is kind of a big question, like America and progress and society because there's this movement now with what you guys are doing, a lot of similar farms to sort of return us more to a state that's different than we are today with conventional agriculture and how things are done. But could it have happened any other way? Like, so what we're trying to get to today, could that always have been the way it was? Or do you think we had to go through the system we went through to like progress as society? Oh, that's a great question. You know, let's take a, let's kind of take a step back in time and we recognize that, you know, harmony or this harmonious relationship that humans always had with the planet was how we evolved. And it wasn't really until, you know, we could say the invention of the plow was kind of the beginning of that, shall we say, downward spiral, but really the industrial revolution, right? Like we, we sent people off to the Midwest, to these farms, to live in these smaller communities, to grow their own food, to work in harmony with the land. And it wasn't until the industrial revolution where we started to pull people back to the cities and we recognized that in these major metropolitan areas, you know, New York or Philadelphia, Chicago, that we had to feed massive amounts of people. The only way to do that was through kind of this massive industrial, you know, agricultural complex. And in that, the downward spiral really escalated. So the question is, 
Could we have gotten to this place if it wasn't through the tumultuous last 150 to 200 years of really this industrial growth? I, I, I think the answer is probably no. I think we had to understand our impact in the world as a technologically evolving society for us to recognize that we have to almost go back to those pre-industrial practices to re-engage in that harmonious relationship with the environment. However, and and this is something that I, I think I get very passionate about, is we oftentimes think that technology is the savior, when in fact, I think it's going to be the downfall. We can absolutely value technology and certain types of technology in our quest to create a better world. But if we think it's going to save us, and that's in the form of let's just say lab-grown meat or you know any of the other things that really are trying to take the place of that holistic relationship with the world, we're going to just we're going to screw it all up even worse and you know then we're just basically going to run ourselves into extinction. You mentioned this, I mentioned this. When people hear regenerative agriculture, It's so funny because I think now, like I'm so familiar with the term. I like say it all the time. I say it casually and I assume that people know what it is. But I was talking to some friends yesterday telling them that I was having this interview today and they were like, what's regenerative agriculture? And I was like, oh, (laughs) like, so can we, can we put in place some, some definitions about like, what does this even look like? Great question. And and that kind of is the unfortunate part about regenerative agriculture in this movement is there's not this singular definition of what it is. You know, mm-hmm. you think of organic and that has a very concrete, if not government oversight type of definition. Regenerative, in our opinion, I mean, I'll say ours, but, you know, Jana, please feel free to jump in here, is this return to how the world is supposed to work, how nature is supposed to work. And that is the synergistic blend of animal, man, and plant in harmony with the environment. And the best way to look at regenerative is from the basis of a ruminant animal. Cows, bison, whatever, are packed together in these tight formations as a defense mechanism against predators. And they eat grass, they pee, they poop, they they do their thing, and then they move quickly throughout the land so as to not deplete the land of that entire supply of grass but just to kind of move on as nomadic animals did. And what happens when they do that is is that excrement, that, you know, all of that stuff, their hoof tracks, their hoof movements in the ground actually creates a whole ecosystem, better soil, better water infiltration. The roots of that grass actually reach deeper, which then sequesters more carbon. So this whole, and then that grass grows, and then the animals come back at a certain point, and then you have this whole cycle of life. But what has happened since the Industrial Revolution is we take these cows and we put them in feedlots, tens of thousands of cows, and they completely devastate the land. So that cow or that small group of cows pooping and peeing in small amounts and then moving on is very healthy. Lots of cows pooping and peeing in the same spot for year after year is completely toxic. And so the regenerative movement really is this recognition that if we live in harmony with the land, we do exactly what animals and humans and plants and animals did a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, that's the model. And if we kind of stick with where we're at right now, which is putting putting a bunch of animals in in a pen and hoping that the world is going to get better, well, that's just foolhardy. When you say moving, like how far were they moving? Like how much terrain were they covering? You know, enough that base, you know, think of it this way. If you had a giant herd of bison, right? And and we use bison as kind of this, you know, regenerative icon is, you know, they would go maybe a mile a day, not a lot. You know, it's not like they're traversing hundreds of miles a day. It's just enough that they're 
they instinctually knew that if they stayed in one spot, they were going to desecrate their food supply. They also recognized that by moving, that momentum of the herd was a natural defense against predators. So just that continual movement of a herd is is what did that. And it could be a mile, it could be five miles, but it, it was really just that consistent understanding of that or that natural understanding of that animal or that herd of animals to move through the land, not completely destroy the food supply, but just keep chasing the grass. The ground needs to rest too. Like the grass needs that time to replenish and grow and like have stronger roots. So if these animals are confined in one area, they're eating it literally to the bottom and it's, it is kind of destroying the grass. So the fact that they can move, it gives the grass and the plants more time to grow and nurture the soil better. And that just helps our environment. So actually moving these animals and not keeping them confined is the, probably one of the biggest parts to regenerative and it, helping our, and it helping is. our environment. And, and so now, now that we've started to understand how these animals lived in harmony with the land a thousand years ago, or even 200 years ago, we can, in a technological way, or at least a kind of cattle way, start to re-implement some of those processes. It's called holistic manage- management. Is Those cows, those bison, whatever, they're just moved every 18 hours. So rather than using wolves or you know Native Americans with spears and bows, we actually just use cowboys to simulate that kind of natural predator defense. We move them through, and then that land starts to regenerate. And what we see from that is, you know, again, soil health is everything. And as goes the soil, so does our planet. And we're starting to see that in the Midwest. We're starting to see that in these areas that are monocropped with high levels of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. The soil is dead. And we think that tilling the soil is actually helping, but it's making it even worse. Whereas if we utilize the excrement of these animals, we utilize their natural eating methods where they eat the grass down a little bit. And then that root system goes deeper and deeper and deeper, making that root system stronger, sequestering more carbon, which then feeds the grass to grow. We have what basically the planet is designed to do, and that's to regenerate itself. So on the land piece, one of the things that the plant-based people will often say is that there's not enough land or that animals require too much land to be sustainable. So what is the role of actual land? I'm not sure how uh, opinionated I can be with my four-letter words. Anything goes. <laughs> you know, I think it's apropos for the conversation, but it's total bullshit. Now, one of the reasons for that is actually the way that the government has kind of stipulated more through policy and policy that has been influenced by, shall we say, a, a contingent of the population that disagrees with eating meat, that there's only a certain number of animals that can be on the land at a time, and that's AUMs. And that's a designation that you know only a certain number can be there. And what we found is that when we step outside of those natural, or not natural, when we step outside of those kind of government-mandated policies and we add more animals to the land, we have better regeneration. So the truth is, is that the more animals on the land, the better off we're going to be. And let's look back to the bison days before the settlers kind of came in and really destroyed the bison and probably what, what could be considered one of the most horrific things that humanity has ever done. You know, just think of the the thriving grasslands in the Midwest, and that was all a result of these millions and millions of bison who just called that home. And now when we say that on 1,500 acres, you can have like 40 pairs of cows, we wonder why we're screwing with things. Like, you know, man's foolishness and ego to think that we have 
the answers to what Mother Nature did so well for so many eons long before we showed up is just the ultimate testament to how sometimes batshit crazy we can be. And more importantly, when we allow policy that is dictated by a certain contingent of the population, predominantly vegans, to dictate that, we don't have any real clear science outside of what we know independent of the government organizations to say that this actually has a positive impact. So the research studies that says when we increase herd density, when we increase AUMs, we actually see better carbon sequestration. We see reversals of desertification. We see better water infiltration, better microbial growth in the soil. All of that is the essential component for us to fix a lot of the climate problems that we as a species have created. And this is where all the confusion comes in because, you know, everything that you just said is like the antithesis of what another side might say. I think it's just really confusing to people. So that AUM number, what was that based on? How did the government come up with that? I don't know. Darts at a dartboard? You know, who knows? I guess, like, what is the purpose of it? The purpose was actually to mitigate the number of animals on the land because there was this propensity to put them into confined areas. And then in that, you know, in those confined areas, we saw the degradation of the land based off of what we now know happens, right? And again, it's like if they're all pooping and peeing in one acre of land and it destroys the land, well, then, yeah, we have a viable argument to say, well, these are detrimental to the environment. But when we remove those fences and we allow them to just roam freely, well, then all of a sudden we start to see this regeneration. So the AUMs have really just been kind of this government oversight that's not based on anything hardcore science or data-driven. It's more just based off of theoretical practices without really kind of comparing and contrasting two control groups and saying, well, what happens here if we increase the number of animals versus over here where we decrease it? And when we see that in like in practicality, in practice in the wild, we know that the greater the herd density, the better the environment, the better the soil, the better the grass. And so now I think the Bureau of Land Management is starting to come around to some of these practices. We're starting to see that when we do these practices, when we increase the number of animals and we treat them like they were treated, you know, 10,000 years ago, we have a much better environment than the environment that we are trying to manufacture through policy. So what happened with the bison? So in an effort to really... It was a war against the American Indians or the Native Americans. And so we went in and, you know, the, the army at the time was charged with slaughtering millions and millions of the Native the native bison. And what that did was that forced the Native Americans into into kind of agreement with the, with the American settlers. And then from that point on, we pushed them into their, you know, into their tribal lands. But yeah, one of the greatest tragedies in global history is what the American settlers did to the bison. And we hunted, we hunted them almost to extinction. But there are pictures of, there are pictures of just mountains of bison bones. And it's just the American army at the time was charged with killing as many as they could. Oh my goodness. That is really haunting. Okay, you mentioned the role of the soil and how it is affected by these animals. So there's this, there's like this fact that's floating around out there, but then I've heard that it's not based on reality. So I don't even know what the actual fact is, but they say like we're losing our topsoil and in X amount of years it's going to be gone. Or so what is the state of the topsoil right now? It's it's a damn Greek tragedy. Now, in 2015, the World Health Organization, in conjunction with the United Nations, proposed uh, through some reports said that there was about 60 harvests 
left on planet Earth. That has that was later debunked. But what it basically said is is that we're eroding topsoil to the point that there's really only 60 viable harvests left on the left on the planet. And at that point, since we would no longer be able to sustain agriculture, it would be considered an extinction level event for the planet. That has been debunked, but as we look at the science, and especially here in the United States, where we have the largest prevalence of use of herbicides, fungicides, and tilling, those numbers are not outside of the realm of possibility. You know, and I've heard some science say like 100 to 120 years at the current pace. What we do know is is that you know the microbial quality of the soil the basically everything that is soil health water infiltration carbon sequestration all the things that we know lead to that soil health is eroding at such a fast pace that we can't quantify how much time is left at the current pace but what we do know is is that what we're doing through monocropping through the application of pesticides and herbicides that we are creating a soil that will be completely unsustainable in realistically the next two generations. Wow. And so going back to what you're talking about earlier about technology and the role of technology and all of this, I can just see some brainstorming people on the, you know, the plant-based side of things proposing that there might be a way of technology to regenerate the soil. Like, is that at all a possibility or can it really only happen organically or naturally? I don't know of any technological means that's been proposed that would allow for the soil to regenerate other than the application of ruminant animals and going back to the way that it once was. And that that unfortunately is not in line with, you know, the typical plant-based ideology. But here's the question, right? These animals existed long before humans showed up. And if we play our cards right, these animals will exist in concert with humans for generations to come. But my question to that, to that plant-based population is, what are we supposed to do with these animals? If they are not for the harmonious and oftentimes, you know, circle of life kind of component of, of our part here on this planet, then what do we do with them? And I have never been able to get a good answer from, shall we say, the plant-based population, but to answer your question on the technology, I do not know of any technological intervention that would allow us to do what naturally we can do with just allowing cows and bison and other ruminant animals to do what they do best, which is to live in concert with the planet. I was thinking more like growing plants in greenhouses and providing, I don't know, just inserting nutrients, just like recreating the environment ourselves. We can. And, and here's, here's where it gets kind of funky, right? Like now, I, I'm a big believer that kind of the hydroponic or the plant-based vertical gardening is going to have to be an essential component of our diet as populations continue to spiral out of control. You know, we're at close to 8 billion. Some people, you know, some of the reports suggest that we could be at 10 to 12 billion in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Those are staggering numbers. So theoretically, and especially with what we're doing to the environment, you know, some of these vertical gardens, some of these kind of concepts are going to be essential for us. Now, I actually like them for a couple different reasons. Growing your own food is one of those things that allows us to reconnect with our food supply. One of the great stories was COVID happened, right? And we had no clue what was going on. So it's like, is this the end of the world? Is this a zombie apocalypse? What's going on? So me trying to at least be somewhat prepared, I go to Home Depot and I buy all of like these plant seeds and all of these like, you know, basically how to grow food at home. 
that was almost three years ago, and I have yet to produce a <laughs> single edible thing. What it taught me was, again, how disconnected we are from our food supply. Food waste in the United States is an atrocious, what is it, 800 billion tons of food a year or 80 billion tons of, of food a year. I guarantee that when you grow your own food, you waste a lot less. Mm -hmm. So as we start to look at some of these solutions, these micro solutions for food scarcity, for domestic food security, some of these things are a great opportunity for people to get more connected with their, their food supply, waste less, and be a little bit more health conscious by making sure that they're growing organic fruits, vegetables at home. So I think that there's absolutely a place for this. That technology should not be relied upon as the single source of, shall we say, plant-based ideology for ensuring that we can feed 8 billion people. And if you do the back of the envelope math, if the entire 8 billion people on planet Earth were to switch to a plant-based lifestyle, we would eradicate the soil in less than a decade. So think of it this way. If 8 billion people switch to vegan, a vegan diet today, the planet would be in, inhabitable in 10 years. So do you know when they're planning potential, well, not that we're going to do this, but I know they've done studies on food systems. If we were to live on another planet, are those usually all like hydroponic type situations? Do you know? Yes. And it kind of has to be. But one of the things that most of those food systems, you know, th those kind of uh, concepts, and I know that actually Elon Musk's brother is working on this as kind of part of the SpaceX going to Mars thing. What they haven't been able to reconcile is the nutritional deficiencies of a hydroponic plant-based lifestyle with what the physical demands are going to be of working in a place like that. And so muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown seems to be one of the most common occurrences that happens as we start to evolve into a plant-based lifestyle where the lack of animal protein becomes a real hindrance to a mission, a long-term thriving environment on a foreign planet. Well, it's kind of like that really famous biosphere study. Back, I don't know. Was that like in the 80s or the 90s when they, they had people live in this? The biodome. But yeah, like a self-sustainable and they had to like grow their own food. They were in there for a long time. It really ended up being a, a really good look at calorie restriction, the health effects of that, because they ended up like very calorie restricted. They did. And I think they had to pull the plug early. It, it actually ended up being an epic failure. And I know like one of the main guys actually died prematurely. And I think it might have been due to the effects of that. But so interesting about the, the pandemic and growing your own stuff and all of that. So I have a lot of arrow garden units and I grow like I'm looking at it right now. I grow cucumbers and chives and cilantro. I had never grown anything, not extensively, at least not like actual like things I could eat before. And an interesting experience I had doing that, A, I recommend everybody do it, not necessarily to feed yourself, although that could be a good reason, but more just what you were mentioning, like having this experience of connecting yourself to your food and what it's like to grow something. Something really interesting about it and this ties into, we haven't talked about this yet, but I guess the ethics surrounding eating animals and all of that. When I finally grew my own cucumbers, I realized these plants feel very alive to me. And I don't want to say they're sentient, but they feel very much alive. It made me ponder, because there's a lot of arguments from the vegan side about the ethics and morality of eating animals, eating sentient beings. But to me, it seems like 
everything is alive and maybe we should look at the natural, you know, circle of life, like Lion King style. What are your thoughts on those arguments that are presented about, you know, the morality and ethics of eating animals that were sentient? I think it comes back to for something to live, something has to die. And that is the circle of life. That is the way that this planet is is based. And and whether that's from the lonely fungus to the worm to the larger animal, for something to live, something has to die. And when we ignore that, and when we think that we exist outside of that, that is the greatest acme of foolishness in, in all of human history. And that is what I challenge the vegans to recognize, is that how do you exist outside of the food supply? How do you exist outside of the food chain? And just because we evolved as perhaps arguably the dominant species on this planet does not give us the right through some small, simple twist of evolution to, you know, to think that we can exist outside of that. And what happened in this weird kind of evolution of man is is that we forgot that being connected to our food supply can you know being connected to the animals that nourish us more so than the plants because you know if we go monocrop anything or monocrop land we kill a lot more in that acre of of monocrop land than ever will happen when we kill a larger animal but when we start to exhibit gratitude and connection to our food supply, whether that's, you know, a blueberry or a cow, then we're reconnected into this, you know, into this life cycle. And we kind of start to shed the ego that I I really believe a lot of vegans have is, is that they think that they can exist outside of the food supply and you just simply can't. In doing so, you create exponentially more harm than to acknowledge what it means to be part of that holistic environment. One thing that I think is very interesting too is that children these days as well, I've noticed that there are a lot of school programs that are integrating more farm day trips where they bring kids to farms and get them more connected. And I think that is something that's that we are missing in, in today's world. Me personally, I am very spiritually connected to animals. I love animals so much. And so when people do hear that we own a processing facility where we do kill animals, it can be very conflicting, right? Like how can you say you love animals when you do this for a living or for work, right? I, I have a story where, you know, I went to the first time that I went to a processing or to our processing facility, it is different, right? If it's not something that you grew up with where you are in a ranching family or you're on the farm or you work with animals or you like you eat the animals that are on your land, it's very different <laughs> when you come from like a city and you're not used to like seeing, you know, what the actual process is like. So for me, coming into that type of environment for the first time when we started this business, it was very shocking to me. But afterwards, I have never felt more connected or have had more reverence for animals before then. So like even even just acknowledging the process of what we do to nourish ourselves with the animal protein that we eat, it actually has enhanced my love and appreciation for animals more than I thought that I could have. And so I do appreciate that there are programs where especially with the children, you know, like we are integrating more of this get back to your roots, get your hands in the soil, like be with animals and, and get outside. I think that will be a very amazing step forward to us getting more connected with our with our world especially starting it you know at such a young age for children do you get a lot of backlash or 
Do you get like threats or anything like that? Oh yeah. Regularly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like with my following on social media as well, I mean, I'm sure you know, it's just like the social media world is very opinionated and people are, you know, hiding behind keyboards and stuff like that. And so they, it, you know, so you pair that with, you know, the very opinionated movements between, you know, eating animal based versus, you know, vegan or, you know, plant based. Yeah, they, they definitely come out and we have definitely gotten some very, yeah. <laughs> and, very and, aggressive, you know, insults. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, Infrared Sauna, Hyperbaric Oxygen Chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show, like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Anna Kabeka, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. And I make no mistake about it that I, if you look at my social media, I, I like to poke the vegan bear, as I like to say. And, and, and I hate that it's become so polarizing in the fact that we can't have academic intellectual debates. But when an ideology is based off of a, a belief system and not science, I, it's kind of like religion, right? How do you change people's minds? But the interesting thing that we've found, and I don't know if you've seen this, is the number of vegan, you know, ex-vegans who have said, you know what? I changed to a vegan diet for health and then it worked for a little bit, but then I was so unhealthy afterwards that I had to reintroduce animal protein. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of doctors. I think a lot of people who've who've been great guests on your show say the same thing. It's that the vegans are actually their most unhealthy patients. So it's really balancing the ideological kind of that that ego that says I can exist outside of the food supply with the real health needs of incorporating animal protein into a diet. And, and we just haven't been able to reconcile those two, especially in social media where people, as Janice said, like to hide behind their keyboards. It's shocking what <laughs> what people will say. It's like if you saw me in real life, I mean, most people would not go up to you and say that in real life. It's a really sad state of affairs. And the protein piece, I just think is, well, there's a lot of confusion surrounding that as well. And 
I think people make it very generalized and basic. So people will say, oh, you can get you know enough protein easily from plants that it's not difficult to do. But it doesn't take into account the fact that I think a lot of what we base that on is like ruminants where they have the ability to turn plants into protein more so than we can. Like I was listening to an interview about this recently and they were talking about like the gut microbiome and cows, for example, and how like literally they can create amino acids from that, that we just can't. So any studies based on looking at, you know, animals that eat grass and the protein that they, you know, make from that, like vegetarian animals, it's just not, not the same thing for us. So do you think it's possible for like any vegans to get enough protein? Like, do you think there are some outliers or across the board, is it an issue? You know, I think there's always going to be outliers and, and, you know, obviously if something's working for you, great. Right. Like, but I, I think that we can't look at the microcosm of a short amount of time in a vegan diet as the answer to everything. And what we found is that people who've had health benefits on a vegan diet are usually coming from the standard American diet where they're so full of like seed oils and high omega sixes and, you know, potato chips and Mm -hmm. sugars. And it's like, well, yeah, if you eat anything natural after that, you're going to be healthy. But sarcopenia or muscle protein breakdown, especially as we age, is a very, very real thing. And, and, and kind of that jump off the cliff moment is when we can no longer synthesize you know, muscle protein or amino acids for that muscle protein, and we start to have that real kind of cataclysmic breakdown. I have seen in most of the literature, actually in all of the literature, that muscle protein breakdown or sarcopenia is exacerbated by a vegan diet. So we know that with clean protein, animal protein, we can actually live a longer, healthier existence. The challenge is, is the you know the kind of the argument is is that well, red meat is so bad for you, but most of the time that was paired with that standard American diet of seed oils, of high omega sixes, of things that really said that really didn't look at protein from an animal in isolation as its health benefits without combining it with all the things that we now know are so toxic to a human being. Yeah, no, I cannot agree more. And like the healthy user bias, I think is just so rampant. So, you know, basically the fact that a lot of people that are eating red meat, like you just said, it tends to be a certain type of person, just if you're looking at the whole entire general population that is more in line with a more standard diet compared to people who aren't, who are likely following a lot of other healthy practices as well. I think it's just pretty blinding. Like I know that they've done interesting studies where they control for that by doing it with populations that shop at like Whole Foods or or something. And then I'd have to find the exact study, but basically the differences go away. Like when you select for people who are like purposely following a healthy diet, it's harder to make those connections with like red meat specifically and, and health issues. Speaking of nutrition in all of this stuff, how do you feel about the nutritional profile differences and benefits between conventionally raised meat versus sustainable regenerative. We probably need to define organic. I've had Rob Wolf on the show multiple times and he wrote a beautiful book called Sacred Cow, which I really, really recommend that everybody read. He actually makes the case in that book, surprisingly, that regeneratively raised and sustainable and grass-fed, grass-finished beef actually isn't that much more nutritionally better than conventionally raised. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and and obviously he and Diane, I think, have done a lot of research on this one, and and it's hard to ignore kind of the you know the commitment and really the 
opportunity that they've given the regenerative movement to to capture a foothold foothold in the marketplace. So we absolutely love what they've done and, and applaud that. Now, I'm going to take a step back in time and look at what happened in the 1960s when Dr. Jorn Dyerberg went to Greenland to study the Inuit population to determine why they as a as a subset of a population without access to fresh fruits, fruits and vegetables had such the such a lower incident of cardiovascular disease than almost any other subset of the population. So after his time there and taking all these blood samples and in and, and the study, he comes back and he publishes his findings. And what he found is that the predominant dietary staple was like whale meat or seal, which was really high in omega-3 and really low in omega-6. And so that was really the beginning of this whole omega-3 movement. And at the time, there wasn't really a viable commercial source of like whale or seal oil to, to kind of create that. So that's where the world turned to fish oil. And we saw the real giant explosion of the fish oil boom, especially on the EPA side, which we now know is kind of essential for some cardiovascular health. Well, Basically, what we found is is that the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio was the driving force in those inflammatory components that allowed the Inuit population to not have the cardiovascular disease that especially Americans had. So if we think about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio from an anthropological perspective, about 150 years ago, most people on the planet had about a 4 to 1, 6 to 3 ratio, which modern science says that's pretty optimal for balancing inflammation resolution. Now, it wasn't until we started to get into the seed oils, especially like, you know, the uh, the corn and all of that, that those numbers went from a four to one to a staggering sometimes 25 to one here in the United States. That level of omega-6 is so pro-inflammatory and oftentimes is blamed on red meat when in fact it's mostly the seed oils, the corn, the grain. So then theoretically and through science, what happens is if we're pumping all of these cows full of that same corn, that same grain that has such a high level of omega-6, that ruminant animal is not capable at that level of kind of separating out those omega components. And so when we eat that animal, we are getting more omega-6 than we would from a traditional regen or from a more regenerative or holistically managed animal. And so while Rob's research is correct, in a lot of ways, what I found is looking at the you know omega quant testing, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios of regenerative cows versus you know conventional cows that are fed that grain diet, we can see that there is a significant health benefit from a regenerative cow simply in the lower omega-6 ratio. And when we kind of extrapolate that to a better diet, we can see that lowering that omega-6 has a profound health benefit for everybody. Now we have more optimal ratios. We have better inflammation resolution. We just have lower inflammatory markers. And if inflammation is really the root cause of all disease, anything that we can do to keep that down is, is completely beneficial. So I'm so glad you said that because he talked about that in the book. And I actually have my notes from the book that he wrote about with that because he was saying, because I hope this is the right numbers. I have written down from that book that like conventional, the omega-6 to omega-3 is an average of 67 to 320 compared to 14 to 20 for grass-fed, grass-finished. And what I thought was interesting was, it's been a while since I read it, but I think in that section, he was saying, well, you know, that the omega-3, omega-6s aren't a large portion of the fat anyway. So it's like not that big of a deal because it's more like, you know, the monounsaturated fats in the meat. 
and that you could get your omega-3s from salmon. But the way I see it is I don't think we need massive amounts of these omegas in our diet, but it's the ratio that's so important. And so if the foundation of the meat, even if it's not your main source of omega-3s, if the foundation of it is so skewed in that direction with the omega-6s and that's like the foundation of your diet, I, I think that that could have, as far as like setting up the inflammatory profile of your body, I could see how it would have really big implications. So I'm glad you said all of that. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more, Melanie. I, I think that's something that we have to consider. And, and really looking at what we've done to our oceans, it's unfair of us to now be dependent on fish, fish oil, those type of omega-3s to counter what we've done by feeding our cows massive amounts of omega-6 when we can just solve the problem by turning all of these cows loose on open fields, on open pastures, on the grass, which allows us to regenerate the land, to reverse climate change, to reverse desertification, to improve the soil, all the things that we know we need. So the simple solutions are so elegant, yet so profound in their ability to undo all of the damage that we as a species have caused. It's like, why do we even need to think about fish? You know, if you want to have sushi, go have sushi. But let's not look at that as a solution. Let's look at that as a element of a diet, assuming that we can get our land back to where it needs to be and our oceans back to where they need to be so we're not eating plastic fish. So actually to that point, I actually have, I think at least in my world, controversial thoughts on the whole fish thing. So many people are like, they say to eat all wild-caught fish, I am so concerned about the toxins in our ocean that I actually only eat, like I vet the fisheries and the, you know, where I'm getting my fish from. And I actually prefer farm raised where it's a very sustainable and it's monitored for toxins and mercury levels because even like wild caught salmon, I don't trust with like mercury and toxins. So Yeah. Yeah, Evan and I actually, we probably eat fish maybe what, like once a month now or something? Like we, it is not anywhere near what we used to eat. And actually I've had mercury toxicity for years and I've done a lot of work on my own to get rid of the toxins that I know for a fact were coming from the fish I was eating, which was a lot at a, at a certain point. So our oceans are not, are not healthy. And like, we're very skeptical of, you know, the fish can't like run away from the toxins they are they're breathing it in like you they can't they can't help but ingest what we're putting in our oceans because of that now we are ingesting that and that is not we should be skeptical we should be more mindful about where we're actually getting our fish and what we're you know where we're where we're getting that from we've almost cut fish almost entirely out of our diet and focused more on our ruminant animals you know eating more nose to tail to get as many you know n- nutrition as possible you mentioned earlier Chris Shea. Did you work with him on your heavy metal toxicity? Not him specifically, but yes, we're very close with Chris and he's definitely given me a lot of different protocols and things like that in the past. He's a fantastic person. Yeah. I remember when I had him on the show, I mean, I had mercury toxicity as well and he told me I would be on his wall of fame. I was like, oh no. <laughs> so yeah, my blood levels were like 30 something, which is not good. Yeah. My doctor also told me it was like off the chart. She's never seen anyone as high as a mercury is what I did. So, you know, I, I did, you know, the chelation therapy for two years, saunas, coffee enemas. Like I did so many things to help detox me and you both. <laughs> yes. So many things to help <laughs> detox the body. And it is a long process. I mean, 
we have to be mindful about what we're consuming. And we live in a toxic world. The world that we live in now is out to kill us, really. I mean, this this is we have to do things to combat the the toxins and things that we're exposed to on a daily basis that we can't run away from this is our water this is our air i mean this is the things our our household supplies we can this is a whole other topic obviously but it's so important i know you understand i actually can tie it into our present topic but just out of curiosity did you do pharmaceutical chelation i it was an edta supplement that i was taking on almost a daily basis so it wasn't like the the IV drips I know some people get. It was a more of a supplementation that lasted about two years. It was EDTA or it was not? Yes, it was. Oh, it was. Oh, wow. You took oral EDTA. Yeah, yeah. It's a company called Zymogen. Wow, okay. I'd heard of oral DMSA. I didn't know people could do EDTA orally. I did IV. And I think looking back and... I would not have done it because I'm kind of like an extremist. And when I found that out, I was like, okay, I'm, I was like getting this out. Like, I'm just going to like do these IVs. I'm going to pull all the metal out. And I think I went too intense and pulled out a lot of nutrients. Gotcha. Gotcha. And obviously, you know, if you, if you pull too much, or if you stir up too much toxin that's in your body, that can cause some other reactions as well. So it is a slow process, unfortunately, you know, like I said, it took me two years to fully get rid of them. So yeah, but you know, once you once you know what real health feels like, you're like, damn, I didn't know I was this like sluggish or like my mind wasn't right all the time or I couldn't think this well. And so once you actually feel what health feels like, you're like, damn, all right, this is, this is something I need to continue. The saunas really helped and that's a, like a daily part of my life now. I just love it so much. But do you do cryo? Every day. Do you? Oh, good. Nice. Awesome. Every day I can. I'll go right after this. Do you guys do cryo? Yeah, we so the, the, interestingly enough, you know, this was probably about 2 years ago, right as COVID was starting and and we've always really been into, you know, sauna or or kind of the contrast therapy and you know, it was like COVID like, well, what's a what, you know, we're not going to go to the to the clinic and do it. So we started looking at some of the options and I just didn't like any of them. They all looked like pine death boxes. So we decided to build one just for our own use. And I built it out of copper and it was just this really beautiful looking tub. And then everybody's like, oh, you should sell that. So then I'm like, all right, yeah, like I need another project. So we actually created our own cryotherapy tub, but it's it's all reclaimed wood using just natural products. And I use copper because I wanted something that wasn't chemical based. I wanted a natural, just, uh, I wanted a natural metal that would clean water very, very well without any like you know chlorine or anything like that. So yeah, we we actually built and started selling our own cryo tubs. You put ice in it? No, it's self cooling. So it's you just plug the thing in and it it. Oh, okay. It does plug in. Oh wow, you like all? Oh, oh wow, you guys are inventors. Self cleaning, self cooling unit. Yeah, we we like to do many things. <laughs> This is so cool. Yeah, I do the I go to a restore and do the um like the the chamber. Oh, like the chambers, right? Mhm. Yeah. I need to do the actual water. You know what's interesting? I found that getting into ice water is a lot more challenging than stepping into one of the the uh, you know, the cold chambers and it's it, it's a different, you know, mentality, I think, to submerge yourself, like where every inch of you is is covered in like 40 degrees or whatever, maybe lower. Well, I think the brown fat activation on on water submersion over the uh, nitrogen, liquid nitrogen cool chambers is is beyond debate. So it's, you know, it's it's a lot more painful, but I think the benefits far outweigh the, uh, you know, the pain. Yeah. 
I believe you. Like I said, I haven't actually done an ice bath, which probably shocks a lot of my listeners, but I can just tell. Like, I know that it's probably way, way worse. (laughs) Oh, it sucks. It's brutal. (laughs) Yeah, I had Wim Hof on the show as well. And that was like one of my most amazing interviews ever. And I was asking him if I could like get a chest freezer and like fill it with water. And he was like, sure. <laughs> so I need to, I need to get on that. We love Wim. We had him on our show and same thing. He's just like, he's so passionate and he's it just such I, a beam of light, yeah. like just a beam of light. He's incredible. When I was mentioning Farmer Lee Jones earlier, he has that same spirit. Them two have been like the two interviews where I was literally just like, I was beaming and smiling the whole time because I just felt so inspired. But actually, I am glad we're talking about toxins. So the role of toxins in conventionally raised livestock, how bad is that? Like hormones, antibiotics, all of that stuff. It's pretty bad. And, and, you know, we also have to consider the food supply of the animals, right? So, you know, when, when we look at these large feedlots, which are owned predominantly by the big four meat producers, you know, places like Colorado or Nebraska or even South America, where we're seeing a lot of the deforestation, you know, the, the genetically modified, you know, covered in glyphosate corn is what's being fed to these animals. So you have that level of toxin, but then for the purposes of maintaining that animal through its life cycle, you have the hormones and the antibiotics. And so there's this one-two punch of what traditional or not traditional, what conventional meat is doing to us. And it's scary. Let's be honest. I mean, like when we're imbibing those toxins, we're, we're imbibing those hormones and antibiotics, it is completely foolish to think that that doesn't have some type of impact. And now if we're promoting a meat lifestyle or more meat in our life because of the nutritional benefits, but then we're offsetting that with these, you know, with these conventional raised beef, it's no wonder that we're seeing a lot of the health ramifications, especially in what we would consider the lower socioeconomic groups who can only really purchase some of that cheaper meat. Do you guys know Terry Cochran? Have you met her? Yeah. She has like a really fascinating theory. She thinks that the stressful conditions of conventionally raised livestock actually causes the proteins in them to truncate and create these amyloids. And she thinks that's like a key factor in health conditions. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. And actually, there's a a company out of Greeley, Colorado that we work with uh, called Zyant. And I'm not allowed to share a lot of the information, but what they've done is create red light, but it's, uh, or light devices, but those light devices are actually pulsed at specific recipes to create certain physiological responses. What we do is we utilize those lights when we transport cattle from the farm to the processing facility. And what we've been able to- Calms them down? It calms them down to the point that their melatonin levels stay reduced ridiculously high while their cortisol levels stay ridiculously low, like so far different than the control group. And that light, by mitigating that stress, it obviously has a better impact on the quality of meat, but it's also a better impact on all of the elements of that animal. And and so what we're seeing is, is now we're starting to put these lights in the farms, in the ranches. And so these animals are exposed to this constantly and it mitigates a lot of these stress responses that they have and these are even just natural free range cattle but we're seeing it at some of these smaller kind of feedlot type of areas this technology has also been used in you know in egg production and what we're seeing is is the egg production is so much better so much healthier for chickens, for chickens yeah so it's 
you know, the ability, I kind of come back to something I said earlier, is the ability for technology to have an impact in agriculture is there. And we just need to embrace it and recognize that we can have a profound positive impact in the entire food supply by utilizing some of these new understandings. This is sort of a controversial question. So I had Mark Schatzker on the show. He wrote a book called The Dorito Effect and The End of Craving. Those are two different books. But then he wrote a book called Steak. Have you guys read it? I have not. No. Just added it to the list. He basically went around like the entire world to try to find the world's best steak. I learned so much about the different types of cattle and the different types of steak and it's fascinating. Like you, <laughs> and I learned like all of these crazy fun facts that I didn't know. Like black Angus beef is they basically just if it's like a black cow, they basically label it black Angus, but it might not be. Ang- I was like mind blown. Like that's so arbitrary. <laughs> it's literally just the color of their their hair. So they and they they might not even be Angus. Like <laughs> so, but in, and it's a, it's a really funny book. But in any case, the last chapter I think it's the last chapter. After like going and doing all of this, he decided to raise his own cow just for the purpose of that experience and seeing what that was like and then like having his own steak from a cow that he raised. And at the end, I was laughing out loud reading it, but he talks about, it's kind of dark, but he was talking about the moment where he had to prepare the cow to take to the slaughterhouse and all of that. And so he was, she had a name and everything and he like was giving her like beer and apples and like trying to make her feel, you know, really good, really good. So my controversial, but like actually sort of serious question, like, can you like get them the cows tipsy? Will they be happier? I'm just wondering about like substances and stress levels of the animals. You're using the red light, obviously, but are there other methods to reduce their stress at the end? You know, I think so much of it actually comes down to how they're raised. And, you know, the the stress level of a cow that's raised on pasture, on grass, is so much less than these confined animals. And and so that that's a big part of it, right? Now, one of the things that we've been able to do is mitigate some of the stress of the natural world through the use of cowboys or holistic management. So think of it this way. If the cows are out in pasture their entire life, well, natural predators cause a natural stress response. So you've got wolves, you've got, you know, whatever natural predator is. And so that animal is always on heightened alert, meaning its cortisol levels are always a little bit higher because it's always prepared for fight or flight. If in the process of holistic management, we're just utilizing like electric fencing and cowboys to move them along, they have that same free range but they have a lower cortisol level because they're not constantly freaked out about you know what's around the corner. So really, when we talk about animal husbandry, it's, it's just free range. It's getting these animals out on pasture, moving them through, giving them a quality of life that they didn't have either in the feedlot or even before you know, kind of the revolution of regenerative agriculture. So this is this is that thing, right? Like if we're going to have animals out on the pasture, which we need, we can't eliminate animals from the planet. What's better to have this animal live this amazing life out on pasture, eating grass, feeling safe because it's got the cowboy there with the, the six shooter, or to be constantly on edge because it thinks that it's going to die that day from a wolf or a bear or something like that. What's better? What's but you know? Is it better to give these animals an amazing life to honor that animal, and then at the end of its life to honor it even further by being connected to that animal as a part of our food supply, 
eating all of it, nose to tail, the organs, everything. And if for whatever reason we don't eat it, we utilize that. And that's one of the things that we've done at our processing facility is, you know, we have an aerobic digester. So anything that's not edible goes into this digester and 24 24 hours later comes out as organic fertilizer that we now share with ranchers and farmers in the area so that they have a cheaper source of organic fertilizer to help continue that cycle of life. And now we know what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Fertilizer prices are through the roof. Grain prices are through the roof. So by taking control of that entire value chain and utilizing every bit of that animal the way that our ancestors did, we're able to really reconnect with all parts of of how it means to be human. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. So basically these 
livestock and these animals are, they can, if they're in the system, living a better life than they would be in the wild. I guess the argument that I'm just thinking of like devil's advocate, I feel like the argument that the vegans could make or like an analogy would be, this is a very dark analogy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like trying to decide if I should say it. Like, I guess the analogy would be like, if it was a species above us, raising humans. And it was like either the option of letting humans be on this world and in war and fighting themselves and having strife, but they had agency over their own ultimate ending based on their life choices and like what wars they're engaging in and what predators they escape or don't compared to like having these species, us on a planet and take care of us. We actually don't have danger and threat and everything's good. But then at the end, they um, kill us. That is a very interesting thought. <laughs> Evan, have you ever thought of that before? <laughs> well, I mean, look, it, you know, we always talk about it in the form of like, you know, if an alien civilization comes down, always the technologically inferior civilization is the one that gets eradicated. So do we honor our position? And when I say position on this one, I, I think it could be debatable as the dominant species on the planet and recognize that to get to that dominant species, we integrated animals as part of our food supply. If we acknowledge that that's how we got here, is it up to us to continue that process in a way that benefits both the animal that got us here and our new position as the dominant species on the planet? I don't know. I, and, and this is the ethical debate, but I love it from the standpoint of saying like, we cannot now say that because of where we're at, from an evolutionary standpoint, that we can no longer look at the other animals as part of our food supply. If we if we consider ourselves apex predators, which we are, then how does that work? And, and I think that the humanity in us is to say that we are now offering or giving that animal a much better existence than what it would have had a hundred years ago when it didn't just have to worry about us, but it was wolves and bears. And I'm sorry, but you know, as Jana said, when you when you come to a processing facility, it's not glorious work. It's not being a porn star, if that's considered glorious work. That was a joke. It's difficult. It's challenging. And some of the, the, the people that work at these plants have a level of compassion and understanding for these animals that I, I never would have believed until I was there. What is better for that animal to live an amazing life and then to to become part of our food supply in one instant with, you know, w with a piece of technology that kind of, that kills it quickly, like instantaneously, mm -hmm. or to be taken down by a wolf or a bear where it's right. slowly consumed, be being aware of almost every moment of that demise. Like It's one bad day versus a lifetime of potential threats and disease and like could be slow deaths, you know, injuries, broken legs where they're just it could be suffering, you know, and yes, this is a very ethical debate. And, and Diana Rogers actually did a really interesting post about this a while back about, you know, animals that really truly are just living out in the wild where we're, where we're not helping manage them. Their deaths can be very, you know, slow and, and agonizing, you know, if, if they're not being treated or, or they're very safe with people, you know, and then they have one bad day. And so it is this weird kind of ethical trade-off. And you think about like, what is, what is the most appropriate thing to do? I don't know. I like the whole one bad day thing. That sounds a little bit better to me. Are they stunned? How does the process work? Yeah. So there's a couple different ways. You know, mostly it's just a, it's a, it's a bolt gun that is, is it's just a instantaneous death. 
And the U.S. Department of Agriculture is on site for every single event, and they monitor and, and improve practices all the time to ensure that these animals do not suffer. And, and we can say that, and, and I'm sure that every vegan out there is like, well, how do we know? The answer is we don't. And, and so the, the, the real focus is to not, or the, the real challenge is to not focus on that moment, but to focus on the food supply and to really be grateful and have gratitude for that animal, knowing that we're doing the best that we can with our understanding and the tools to ensure that that moment is as quick and as painless as possible. I'm not going to say that it's completely painless because I, I don't know, and I don't think anybody does, but it's really a recognition that if, if we are connected to that food supply, then we can be grateful for that animal, and then we can utilize every bit of that animal to perpetuate a healthy existence for us and for the plant. I mean, going back to what you're talking about with like the evolutionary progression of us as the apex predator and you know that journey involving eating species below us, I think it would be one thing if a completely plant-based system actually could support health in the environment. I really just think that's a pipe dream. And especially reading Rob Wolf's Sacred Cow, I mean, it just seems like that is just disaster for the planet and health and humanity. People like to just look at things very black and white and not look at the details of everything. And I think that does a disservice to everything. I also think about, I think one of the biggest arguments for just the natural circle of life is there are carnivorous mushrooms. And so what's going, like, is that okay? Like if mushrooms can eat other plants, I just think people should think about that. Oh yeah. And, and look, it, it's, let's look back at the entire evolutionary history, you know, the, the anthropological history of this planet. It's, it's the same thing. It's like for something to live, something must die. It's, you have your, you know, your herbivore species, you have your omnivore species, you have your carnivore species, you know, human beings exist kind of in that omnivore stage. But when we really look at it and I don't know how this I'm going to throw them under the bus, but if you go to PETA's website, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they have something on there that says that if you're driving down the road and you see an animal that was like run over and dead on the side of the road and you don't feel and you don't feel compelled to go eat it, that's scientific proof that we evolved as herbivores. And I'm like, I, like I lost my mind. My head yeah. like almost exploded. Yeah, Very and, strong statement. And and PETA, let's let's be honest, has never been known for being smart, they've been known for being good marketers. But what we do know is everything about human evolution, human biology dictates that we evolved as omnivores. We utilize plants, we utilize berries and, and vegetables as an interim nutritional source while we were, you know, as, as nomads tracking down large game. And our gut microbiome, our teeth, our jaws, all of these things dictate that, yes, we are omnivorous. We get protein. We can synthesize protein from animals. And actually to the, to the fact that our gut microbiome actually puts us more as kind of scavengers and less as carnivorous, meaning because we didn't have the strength or the ferocity to go kill the animal, oftentimes we would come in and pick up like the, the carcass, right? Like we would eat the stuff that, you know, that was left over after the lion, you know, was done with it. So, you know, it, it's it's impossible to ignore our evolution. And in that, why do we think that we shouldn't continue to perpetuate that type of lifestyle for optimal health? Yeah. You mentioned, I think this is something probably important to define for listeners. You mentioned like the word free range. 
And we've been using a lot of words like grass-fed, grass-finished, free-range, organic. What do all of these labels actually mean? Because I know when you go to the grocery store, there's like all the labels. And what's the difference between grass-fed, grass-finished, grass-fed, forage-finished? There's, there's just so many things. Oh my God, yes. And, and it's, it's all marketing, right? It is literally all marketing. All cows are grass-fed. Like that's like, I I mean, unless a cow is born in a feedlot and pumped full of corn, like at a certain point, the way that our, like our cattle system works is most cows are born out on the, you know, out in the range. And so they're grass fed. Every cow is grass fed. It's how they're finished. And so that's really where we need to pay attention to the, to the vernacular on this one. Grass fed and grass finished is kind of ideal. Grass fed forage finish is, is okay. Like forage is really kind of this. It can be regenerative, but it can also include some grain. So, you know, if we really like the idea of regenerative, it's grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. And then, of course, you know, most of the time, if you're just buying like the cheap beef at the grocery store, that's going to be grass-fed, grain-finished in a feedlot. No hormones or or, uh, antibiotics is something that we should always be looking for. So yeah, and, and and I think when you kind of get into like this free range or cage free, all that, that really kind of gets more into the chicken side of things. But that's a whole other bag of kittens that's worth unpacking because the marketing behind that is pretty deceiving and, and honestly scary because we think about like cage free. Well, cage free is a violent place for chickens to live. So So basically cage free means that they're all in this warehouse. They're not in cages. But chickens are violent animals. And so what happens is, you know, they're just constantly killing each other. You know, like free range is they're out of the cage, they're in the barn, and they have access to the outdoors. But what happens is that most chickens won't actually take advantage of that access. So there'll be a door there that they can open, like, a, like almost a dog door, but most chickens will never take advantage of that. And so what we really start to understand is the marketing and all of this. And, and there's some great articles online just to understand the language and then make decisions based off of what's best for the animal and for us as, as people. And, and that's where we just have to understand. It's like, we need to shop with our wallets in the sense of incentivize all of these producers to create food or to get us food that is in line with what's natural, what's best for our environment and what's best for our health. I'm so glad you said that because this is a huge question I have. And I've actually... I think about it a lot. Every time I'm at the grocery store, I've pulled my audience and the results are always, people have a lot of opinions about it. So how do you feel? Because a lot of the big chains like Target and Kroger, and I don't know in Sacramento what they have, like if it's Ralph's or I'm not sure what version of Kroger you have there, but they'll have like their in-store line where they say it's like, you know, organic, grass-fed, grass-finished. People will say like that that's not a good thing because that's like industry taking over and that it's not going to be as transparent as it should be. On the flip side, people will say, no, that's what we need is big companies moving towards this movement. So how do you feel about the large companies doing this and having like their, you know, their in-house brand of where it says that they're doing these things? I think it's a bad idea. And, and I don't think it's a bad idea from them actively getting involved and promoting the education of it. I think it's a bad idea in the sense that we need to become more communal 
as a country and I think as a species. And, and let's go back pre-industrial revolution. We lived in smaller communities. You know, we would, if we had to go to the market because we couldn't grow something, we usually walked there. We got movement. But more importantly, we kind of really grew or maintained everything that was in our food supply. And I think if we can go back to this, this concept of eating like a local vor, you know, getting your food from farmer's markets, supporting local you know, really supporting them as they support regenerative practices is the way that we really start to turn the tide in all of this. And, and whether it's Target or Kroger or any of those other companies, yeah, be a part of the education. But it's really what happens when they're a part of that is, is that the producer, the American rancher or farmer gets the short end of the stick. You know, Target is making the bulk of that revenue. Their margin is the most important part of that transaction. And they marginalize the producer in an effort to get that product to a consumer in a supply chain that allows them to make the most amount of money. Cut them out. Like Target doesn't need the money. The American rancher or farmer who's living off of subsidies needs the, the money. And, and, and if we look at the, the entire economic chain on this one, that producer, the beef producer, the egg producer, the chicken producer, usually has to, you know, usually requires a government subsidy because of how little they make. So they sell that product to a broker. That broker turns around and sells that product to Target. Target turns around and sells that product to the consumer. That consumer has to pay taxes on that product, which then go into the government subsidy so that we can go back and pay that rancher and farmer a livable wage. If we cut out the broker and Target and we just go direct to that rancher producer, we've optimized that entire value chain to the point that that producer now can make a livable wage without the government subsidy. And we know exactly where we're getting our food, which brings us one step closer to reconnecting with our food supply. And two questions from that. One with the local, what about the fact that there could be a lot of local farmers that aren't local to anybody because of where they're like literally based? Yeah. And, and that's the challenge, right? You know, urban sprawl has put us in a position where we might not have immediate access to a farmer's market or something like that. But I think by and large, most places in the continental US are going to have that. Alaska might be the outlier. And, you know, there might be some parts of the Midwest just because of, you know, winters or seasonality. But if we at least begin the process of, of starting with that, if we at least make it some part of our food acquisition, we're starting to move incrementally in the right direction. And I think that's what it takes. It's the recognition of where our food comes from. It's the recognition of what we can do to start to move in, a, in the right direction. And then it's, you know, it's making those small steps. You know, we're not asking everybody to quit smoking overnight, but, you know, like start to limit, you know, all the bad foods, start to support the local person that you can support. And whether that's, you know, the meat producer, the chicken producer, whatnot, it, it's find a way to become a part of the problem or part of the solution and not a part of the problem. I don't know much about the politics of it all, but this goes back to the very first question about, you know, the way things had to be and the way things could be. Like, do you think, because it seems like the subsidy situation just changed. Like if randomly the government was like, hey, we're going to subsidize completely different things that support a completely different system. Like practically, would that change everything? Like if that happened, just as a thought experiment? You know, I, I think it's a great thought experiment. And I think one of the things that we have to recognize is Maslow's hierarchy of basic human needs, which has food, clothing, shelter at the bottom, doesn't have a $1,300 iPhone. We have come to prioritize 
all of the wrong things. And part of that is through the government subsidy of keeping food costs so artificially low that that producer can't make money, but then we've also become disconnected and devalue our food, which is why our food waste is so high. Let me put it this way. If your head of lettuce was actually $15, would you waste it? Would that be that thing that sits at the bottom of the refrigerator and eventually turns green and then you you have to throw away? Answer is no. And so by artificially through subsidies, keeping our food costs so low, we've deprioritized not just the producer, but the health ramifications of eating the way that we need to, to ensure that we don't become the fat, obese, you know, Wally type society where we're all floating around in chairs. Speaking of the waste, just as a side note, I finally got an in-house composter called Lomi. I am so obsessed. If we're talking about like the benefits of like raising your food yourself and having that experience, composting at home, I'm like, oh my goodness, like (laughs) this is so incredible. So I just really encourage listeners to maybe go that route, which also I had another question about using the whole animal. So conventional raised systems, what do they do with everything that's not like the steak? It's So that's called the inedible offal. And most of that will just, interestingly enough, kind of a, a side note to all of this, I grew up in Greeley, Colorado, which is JB, one of JBS's largest feedlots. So my high school and my college were about five miles away from ten to 20,000 cow. And you can imagine what that smells like. Yes, that was my first thought. Yeah. And, and, you know, people are like, oh, you know, don't complain. It's the smell of money. I'm like, no, it's the smell of shit. Let's be honest here. On specific days of the week when they would burn or incinerate that inedible offal, that smell made the, you know, the poop uh, smell like heaven. It's a horrible thing. And, and honestly, we talk about carbon, right? We talk about some of these issues with the environment. Carbon in the atmosphere is simply a result of burning things. That's what it boils down to. And so when we burn a cow or parts of the cow, we're just releasing more carbon into the air. Originally, that cow, when it was killed out in the wild, all of that inedible offal was dissolved back into the soil. So it became part of the solution, not part of the problem. But most of the places, they have an economic model that says, we, this is how we deal with it, because the cost driver is the ultimate decision maker, not what's best for people, not what's best for the planet. Wow. So that had never occurred to me. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I did want to talk a little bit more about the like the greenhouse gas situation and all of that. The burnings of the animals, is that a large part of the carbon problem? It can be. I mean, it's it's there's so many different reasons that we have carbon in, you know, the atmosphere. And I know carbon becomes the big buzzword, but the interesting thing is is we are carbon-based life forms, right? Carbon is just a part of our of our system, but we we definitely recognize what happens when we burn things and that carbon is released in the air as a greenhouse gas, and then we have the methane and all of that. But yeah, we, we definitely release carbon into the atmosphere when we burn parts of these animals that could easily be repurposed for other things, fertilizers, pet foods. You know, again, we've taken industrial revolution has taken the natural way of doing things and turn it turned it on its head. And so that animal that would decompose and become part of the soil, which would you know, which would bring nutrients to the soil, which would bring health to the soil, is now just thrown in an oven and now we've got smelly shit out in the air. Mm-hmm. Which is so sad to me too because like that the organs and like the rest of the animal can be some of the most nutrient dense parts of the animal and the fact that that could be used for fertilizer or even like for us to consume, like we're missing out on so much nutrition and I feel like 
I mean, here's the thing. If we're taking the life of an animal, just kind of destroying it, like burning it, that shows, I mean, we should have more reverence for these animals that are, we're taking their lives for us to consume. So I feel like that's, that's just as depressing for me to hear that, you know, they just burn it and we can't do more with, with, with those parts of it, you know? I had no idea about that. This is a super naive question. So carbon, just in general, I don't even want to ask it. It's so naive. But is there a set amount of carbon in the entire planet that is just being redistributed? Or is there actually new carbon creation? I believe there's a set amount. You know, I, I think the only difference is, is that through the through the population density, there's more carbon as a result of a human being. But carbon is just one of those things. It's like it's it's in the atmosphere, it gets released, or it's it's in the ground, it gets released, and then through the natural cycle of things, it was supposed to be reabsorbed as a basically as a food for our plants. You know, carbon dioxide then feeds the plants through photosynthesis, and then it gets released through burning. So there's this natural cycle, but we've just emitted so much of it that it now has become toxic to us. And so I I know that there's probably some better scientists who can answer that, but my understanding is, is that carbon is kind of static, and it's just how we are through the process of the way that we're stewards of our planet, just releasing way more. And if you look historic, you know, back through the whole planetary history, you know, we can look at core samples and know that carbon levels were really high at, at certain points, especially as the formation of the planet was happening and we had all this volcanic activity, which is actually one of the reasons that since I think 2015, that methane level of 1900 parts per billion has increased to where it's at. It hasn't been because of the cows. It's been because of certain volcanic activity. As well as some other things. So it's, you know, we just can't blame it all on the cows. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I think this goes back to what I was talking about when opening this show, which is just how overwhelmingly confusing it is. Because literally, if you Google this or like go through Google Scholar, which is like one of my favorite places to just read stuff, I feel like you find studies showing completely different stats and about methane and, you know, what's doing what. And it's it's overwhelming. But I mean, some interesting things. So it seems like, at least from reading Rob's Sacred Cow and looking into it more since then as well, like I think rice is actually the biggest generator of methane out of all, I could be wrong. I should probably double check that. I, I know it's like really high on the um, the spectrum. And then I think people don't take into account I know it's skewed in that for cows, they will look at the entirety of everything that goes into that and the methane released and the effect on greenhouse gases compared to plant-based systems where they, they kind of like isolate it. But I guess just stepping back. So you guys think that greenhouse gas wise, like regenerative agriculture is beneficial? Well, not only is it beneficial, it is actually a way to reverse greenhouse, you know, the, the effects of greenhouse gases. So if we think about reversing climate change, part of that is pulling that legacy carbon out of the atmosphere back into the ground where it belongs. So if we turn all of these cows loose onto the pasture and we know that they're actually creating these thriving grasslands, those grasslands are the things that are ultimately going to be the largest carbon sinks. They're going to pull that carbon out of the atmosphere. And, and we're going to start to see that reversal of climate change. Now, desertification is another thing that Alan Savory talks a lot about. And that really is that process by which we're losing the topsoil and then we're now desertifying the land. And if you look at some of the 
kind of the climate maps of especially north, the northern hemisphere, it's desertifying at an alarming rate. And a big portion of that, a large portion of that is actually the, ag- the modern agriculture, not in the form of cows, but in the form of plants, growing corn, how we're monocropping soybeans. And so, you know, we talk about things like the impossible burger, you know, that comes from genetically modified soybeans with levels of glyphosate that are carcinogenic. And so I, I, I laugh at the vegan community who gets so behind this movement to save the planet, but then their, their quarterback in all of this is probably one of the most toxic things that you could put in your body and one of the most toxic things for the planet, which is leading to this desertification. So by implementing holistic management, by implementing regenerative practices, we can start to pull more of that carbon out of the air and have a reversal of some of the climate issues that we're seeing, which is is, is going to be catastrophic. I mean, look at the hurricanes, look at everything we're seeing. These are ultimately climate exacerbated. They might not be change driven, but they are climate change exacerbated. And that's why it's just so, it's really frustrating because like Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, like all of their marketing, I mean, they make it seem like it's very plant supportive, like this is the answer to save the planet. But what I've seen and what you're talking about is it, it just doesn't seem to be that. How do they get away with this? Well, and, and I think, that, you know, I, I hate to see shareholder value go down, but the fact that they lost like 30% of their value is great. The fact that they were actually sued for, you know, false advertising is mm-hmm. great. Like, I love that. It makes me tap dance in the streets. And I love that we actually get to have real conversations that contradict their marketing, you know, and, and, and they're like, well, man evolved as, as you know, as, as plant-based. I'm like, if that's the case, then why in the name of sweet baby Jesus do you need a product that looks like meat, tastes like meat, and bleeds like meat? If you can contend that we evolved as plant, you know, as, as herbivores, then why the freak are you selling a meat product? One of my favorite studies, Paul Saladino talks about this in his book. It, it was a study where they looked at people who were practicing veganism and they looked at the parts of their brains that lit up when they would look at meat or not. And basically their like conscious liking part of the brain didn't light up, but their subconscious part of the brain that had to do with wanting and liking would light up when they saw meat, even if they didn't perceive that they wanted the meat, which I thought was really interesting. I love that. Yeah. Take, put that in your crack pipe pita and smoke it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I, I do have some questions about everything you guys are doing because you keep mentioning the processing plant, which well, that's the first question. So did you buy a processing plant before having a farm? Yes. Yeah. And, and that was the first part of it. And, and I think that, you know, what we needed to understand was the logistics of processing before we got into the farm itself. And then, you know, how do we do that? And, and right now we're at a place where we're still working with all of these different farms outside of our own to understand animal husbandry better. You know, we want to make sure that everything that we do from regenerative pastures is a representation of the best possible practices in holistic management and regenerative agriculture. And so by purchasing this processing plant, we got to learn from the best. And Wyoming is a great place for for regenerative agriculture. But the joke there is you start talking to ranchers about regenerative, they're like, that's just how I've done it for a hundred years. And so it's been really eye-opening to see the practices that work and and how 
unique it is to each ranch and to each farm. You know, how do you work with that particular farm, with the soil, with the water? And it's really an art form. And I, I think that's one of those things that we have forgotten is, is that creating food for the purposes of feeding 8 billion people, or at least 330 million in the U.S., it's not formulaic. It's an art form. It's each ranch is different. Each climate is different. And so, yeah, it's it's just been an exciting process for us to kind of get into this and and you know peel back the layers and recognize that two people from California who've never owned you know a cow or a ranch or a goat are trying to figure figure out how the hell to do all of this. How many farms do you work with right now? Oh, geez, we we probably work with well, it's hundreds in the region, but you know we have we have probably thirty to forty big, big ranches, you know, uh, anywhere between 160 to 200,000 acres that we work with on the processing side. How did you find them? And do you go interview them? And <laughs> how does that work? Yeah, we go interview them. We were there, I don't know, about six months ago and, and one of the, the the head cowboy, and these are cowboys, right? Like they're out on horseback with these. It is something out of Yellowstone. It is so fun to see and, and to talk to these guys and interview them and understand what it is that they do and their perception of what regenerative is. And, and you know, they monitor everything. It's kind of this really cool convergence of technology utilizing like data and then old school practices. How do we move our herd from one paddock to the next or one acre to the next? And how do they monitor that? And how do they really take pride in everything that goes into that cow from the moment that it's born until the moment that it shows up at our processing facility. And it is, it's been such an honor to see that process and to work with so many of these people who, like I said, just get marginalized. They don't like, I mean, I hate to say it. Yeah. Like Elon Musk is cool, but the real heroes of our world are the ones that make sure that we're fed. And, and just, it's been that honor to really reset and recalibrate our expectations about what it means to be a real producer in the United States and ensure that people have healthy access to food, healthy access to to the things that we need to live every single day. I'm super curious because I've heard that that farmers, especially in the conventional system, that there's a lot of mental health issues just because of how dark the system is. What's the vibe of these farmers that you meet? Are they like happy? Oh, I would say so. I mean, you know, they don't look at their phones all day long. They're outside in nature under the sun on a horse with animals. And like, <laughs> these are some of the happiest people I've met. And it, it's interesting. The things that would connect people in mod, in the modern world are things that won't connect you with the average farmer. You're not going to be talking about like your favorite TV shows. They're like a TV. What's that? You know? Like, you know, you ask them about video games or pop culture. It's not, they're, they're focused on a completely different sphere of influence. It's a lifestyle for them. And it, beyond a lifestyle, it's not something they ever take a break from. Like the cows don't get a vacation, so they don't get a vacation. Like these are people that work seven days a week, sun up to sundown. These are the hardest working people in our entire economic system. And yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're just fascinating, salt of the earth, so many amazing people that we've had the pleasure of meeting. And, and I, I can't thank them enough, even though they probably don't even, half of them don't know what a podcast is. Can't thank them enough for doing what they do to ensure that we have animals that we can then turn around and sell to a, a group of, of, you know, or to a customer base that's excited about making a dent in the universe. Wow. That's amazing. Do they do any processing or does it all go to your processing plant, the cows? No, it all goes to our processing plan. So, so we establish protocols that they have to follow to ensure that these are, you know, that meet our standard for regenerative. 
And so then we work with them, we audit them. I don't want to say audit because that's such a negative word, but we actually work with them and then we utilize all available scientific data. That's, you know, carbon testing, that's water infiltration, that's microbial testing. So, and then we just work with them year over year to ensure that they are able to improve their operation, improve their yields, and then give us the data that we need to stand behind our product and say, yes, this is regenerative. This is something that we know has had a massive positive impact in the environment, and more importantly, the health of the people that are eating our product. So looking at everything that you have on your site, it says grass-fed or forage-finished. So are they grass-fed, grass-finished, or is there grain, or what's happening there? We never use grain. So forage could be something like they could be eating a especially in Wyoming, sometimes there's not grass, you know, or or Montana when it snows. And so what we'll do is we'll take like grass or some type of forage that is not considered a grain. But still plants. But still plants. And then that will actually be thrown out on the snow. So there's still pasture and and all of that excrement still stays within the ground. But, you know, sometimes just because of the, the climate, there's not grass for them to eat. So I have never eaten Wagyu because I've actually been super concerned with the health implications of that because it seems like a very unhealthy animal, like just from like the raising practices for it normally. So what type of Wagyu do you guys have? So this is Angus Wagyu cross. And so it's the same, you know, it's the same raising practices, but these are just animals that have been crossbred. So you have an Angus and a Wagyu, and then we raise them in accordance with our regenerative practices. And yes, you, you have a little bit more of that marbling that's typical of a Wagyu, not to the extent of like a pure Japanese. So it's just like, it's just all fat, but it just gives a really nice, unique flavor to it. I think one of the things, if you've ever had Wagyu kind of at a restaurant, which is hyper expensive, you recognize that's something you're not going to eat on a consistent basis. It's so fat. It's, it's got so much marbling. It's more of a delicacy, whereas the, the Wagyu that we sell is something we eat it every week. And it's, it's not something that's overkill to the point that you, you're like, ah, I got to take a break from that. Yeah, it is so delicious. <laughs> it tastes so good. Because every time I see Wagyu at the restaurant, I'm like, I would never order that. But seeing this, I'm like, hmm, I might have to try this. We're going to send you some. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm so excited. Okay. That will be my first time trying Wagyu. And I'll let listeners know what I think. Honestly, we'll send you some of the Wagyu Angus ground beef. It is the best burger in the known universe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So your ground beef, what is that? Okay. Oh, wait. Oh, this is a question I've wondered for so long. I read somewhere that ground beef is often parts of meat, like it's like the like leftover parts of meat. So it might have more like collagen and stuff like that in it. Is that true? Not necessarily. You know, typically the ground beef is just, you know, it comes from the trim. So, you know, an animal is, you know, is killed. And then we typically will hang all of our animals, you know, for 14 days to dry age them, which gives, especially within the grass fed, grass finished world, gives them a little bit more of that really good flavor profile. And so, you know, we take all the steaks off, you know, your ribeyes, your T-bones, you know, all of that. And then what's left, which is the predominant part of the animal, is just the grind. It's it's the stuff that, you know, we put together and we, we create ground beef for it. There might be more collagen, there might be a little bit more fat, but typically it's just, you know, it, it's just a the bulk of the animal that doesn't come in the form of a steak and makes for really good tacos and hamburgers. And still very nutrient dense, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, if if... I want to start eating more 
red meat for nutritional benefits, they're thinking, oh, it needs to be ribeyes and these fillets all the time. No, like ground beef is actually a very nutrient dense source of meat, you know, and especially if it's like the grass fed, grass finished, and it's, it's a healthy, it's a healthy animal, you know, you can still integrate animal protein into your diet in a very healthy way. That's not as expensive as these ribeyes and these fillets and stuff. And it's a lot more versatile too. I have not had beef heart. I've heard it actually tastes similar to a normal steak. Is that true? Beef heart actually, I would say is the easiest organ to consume if you're wanting to integrate more organ meats into your diet. It tastes delicious. And actually one of our most popular things, so we actually make organ jerky at our plant as well. So we have heart jerky and liver jerky, which are definitely our best sellers. It's a really, really nice way to get the benefits of organ meats if you're kind of looking to dip your toe in. Because, you know, you hear people eating like the livers and the spleens and like all the, you know, all the things in there and even like testicles and stuff like that. Very like out there kind of things. Um, heart is a super easy organ to integrate into the diet that has tremendous nutritional value. Awesome. And I'm glad you brought up a jerky. I was going to ask you about that because that I've not seen that before, like liver jerky, heart jerky. Oh, we're definitely sending you some of that. That'll change your life. Are there seasonings or is it? So you can just get natural or we've done like liver and onion for those people who want to throw back to what their grandparents made them, teriyaki, honey. So, you know, we, we play with some, some flavors. Our jerky team in Wyoming is absolutely amazing. How often does stuff go in and out of stock? Is that really hard for you guys to manage, like the supply chain of everything? It is and it isn't. It goes out of stock because it sells really well, but we're usually back in about every week. So it's just, you know, if for someone listening, it's just check back in or you can sign up for, you know, email notifications and we'll notify you when that stuff gets back in stock. But the thing with the organ meats is there's so little of the liver and the heart compared to the rest of the animals. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a challenge to keep up with that. Personal question for both of you. How do you cook and order your steak? Oh, our steak, just our steaks? Well, you know, like rare, medium rare, well done. We both like medium rare. What about you? I would just eat it raw. Like the other night I was craving, I was like, I'm going to make some carpaccio. So I like pulled out a filet, a butcher box frozen filet, and I was slicing it to like make it into carpaccio and it was so good. Then I just, I just like ate all of it raw. I don't know if that's okay, but oh no, it should be fine. I mean, you know, yeah. that's that's the thing. It's 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 all preference. It's all preference. We, you know, typically when we make at home, which we we make steaks almost five nights a week. You know, we like to sous vide the steak first, and then it's just kind of flame kiss for for a little of that charring. But that's that's kind of our preferred method over here. Oh, so I have a sous vide system I haven't actually used yet. Actually, a listener just sent it to me. They were like, "I want to give this to you." I was like, "Thank you." That's yeah. nice. I know people are really really kind. It looks really difficult to do. Is it easy once you get used to doing it? Very easy. You know, for us, it's depending on which one you have, if you've got the whole kind of sous vide oven, I think, you know, there's some, there's some recipes on that one, but we just actually, you know, throw it in the hot water bath for like two hours and then, you know, just sear it on the grill for, you know, three to four minutes aside with some butter and, you know, salt and and that's it. And and you'll have one of the best steaks you've ever had. Wow. Okay. I'm inspired. Oh, and what about oxtail? Is that literally, I've always wondered, is that actually the oxtail? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, all of that, that kind of bone as it gets into the tail portion, but it's really collagen and marrow rich. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually one of our biggest sellers as well as uh, Osobuco. And so those are those ones, you know, you have to kind of play with the recipes that work that, you know, that work for you. There's some amazing recipes, you know, just online that you can find, but those, those cuts really just have that really rich marrow flavor. We love them. 
I remember the first time I had bone marrow. I felt like the heavens like opened. I was like, what is this? (laughs) What is this magic? Have you tried it raw before? Raw bone marrow? Probably because most likely I probably did because I'm the type that just like eats everything raw. Do you prefer it raw? Either, you know, either I always think like, oh, if you're if you're not cooking it, it preserves more of the nutritional value. So yeah, actually I feel like it's really good if you just like kind of scoop it out and like slather it on something almost like a butter. That seems to work well. It's a very, I almost want to say like waxy crayon <laughs> kind of texture. <laughs> it's kind of hard to like chew down, but very, very high in nutrition, collagen and things like that. I think it may have been the biggest gap between just because if you haven't had it before and like when you're a kid, bone marrow, like it sounds like something that might be gross. So I think it was the biggest gap between like not knowing what it was going to taste like. This might be disgusting with like tasting like the most amazing thing known to mankind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many ways to cook these things where it can be more palatable. Like for example, liver is a very distinct taste. I feel like people either love it or they hate it. Luckily, Evan and I actually really enjoy the taste, which is great because of how nutrient dense it is. Liver has basically every nutrient and vitamin that you need. It's so nutrient dense. I call it, you know, nature's multivitamin. So, you know, a lot of people, I suggest that people integrate liver into their diet and kind of replace it with their synthetic vitamins. But yeah, it's the organs are are a fantastic way to get that extra nutrition. I'm so glad you mentioned that about the organs. That's actually a question that I think about a lot and has haunted me. And I don't understand why from like from a historical evolutionary perspective, in theory, it seems like we should all crave organ meats because of how nutrient dense they are. But in general, people don't. And in general, people don't like them. And even me, like I, I went paleo, I like cleaned up my diet. I remember thinking, oh, of course I'm going to love organ meats because in theory, they should be what my body wants. And I still don't like, I still don't like liver. And even at a time when I was like severely anemic, I didn't like the taste of liver. And I don't know why that is. Like I'm, I don't know. My my theory is it might be like uh, toxicity potential of vitamins. Yeah. I mean, think about it too. Like our palates have changed so much over, over hundreds of years, right? I mean, organs are not something that people are really used to eating these days. But I think that when you do change your diet to integrate more you know, nutrient dense things, you kind of crave more of that. And like your body learns to enjoy, you know, for example, like we eat a lot of fruit instead of like desserts and stuff. Now, like our, our bodies crave the fruit and like that type of sugar that has more nutrition in it versus the, you know, processed sweets and stuff like that. Just last question, looking at your website, who is Brooke? Does she work with you guys? Brooke Entz? Yeah. Brooke is one of our influencers. You know, she was one of the Amazonians. But yeah, she she's just a you know friend of the family, a friend of the you know company who's who's been a big avid supporter of regenerative agriculture and and was really supportive of what we're doing. And so you know, kind of with her following in the fitness space has, has been a real advocate for what we're doing and kind of helping a lot of people in the CrossFit community who know that they need to eat healthy, but also just don't understand the education between the under the or understand the education of regenerative versus conventional or things like that. And so you know especially if you're a high performance athlete or anybody and you're looking to just optimize your health in any way, going regenerative is a good start. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I saw like Jana's box and then Brooke and Laura's box. Gotcha. Well, oh my goodness. Well, I know I want to just eat everything right now that you guys make and I'm sure, I'm sure listeners will as well. And so 
I am so excited and thrilled because you guys have an amazing offer for our audience. So friends, you can get 40% off your first membership, which that's incredible and free ground beef for life. Also incredible. And oh, sorry, I know we're running on time. Would, would you like to just tell listeners really quickly the cool fun facts about the ground beef and how it's sustainable to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So so this was something interesting as we first started shipping these boxes all across the country. I was trying to figure out like how do we minimize the use of basically dry ice in that process and started to recognize that like a pound brick of ground beef actually holds that frozen BTU more than dry ice. So I'm like, wait a second here. I can, you know, I can utilize more of the animal. I can keep that package, that shipping package colder longer. And we don't have the environmental degradation of using dry ice. So it was like, so, you know, while I think a lot of companies have kind of talked about like, we'll just give you free ground beef for life. I want to really acknowledge the fact that by purchasing our membership boxes and taking advantage of that special you know, you're creating more food for your family or getting more food for your family, but you're also helping with the environmental piece by allowing us to use less dry ice and shipping. That is so cool. I mean, I just love that. That is just amazing. So listeners, 40% off for your first membership and free ground beef for life. So regenerativepastures.com with a coupon code, Melanie Avalon, 40% off your first membership and free ground beef for life. Well, Jana and Evan, thank you so much. I just can't even describe how much I enjoyed this conversation, how incredibly overwhelmingly grateful I am to you guys for doing what you're doing. I mean, this is like this life changing, planet changing, people changing, animal changing stuff. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So for both of you, what is something that you're grateful for? Ooh, ladies first. It's so important to be grateful for things. So I appreciate that you remind me to even think about that today. I am actually very grateful for my relationship with Evan. He's one of the most amazing people I've ever met, inspires me to be a better person, and I love that I can do life with him. So I am I'm tremendously grateful for him. Oh. <laughs> well, geez, that, yeah. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. I won't take it personally. <laughs> I was gonna say my gym membership, but now I can't say no. Um, you know, I, I find that people are are always the thing that I'm most grateful for, and and you know, opportunities to change people's lives. And so, Jana has really been an impetus for me to to think outside of my traditional box, get creative, and really look at tackling some of the big problems. But uh, also, my daughter, you know, my eight year old daughter, who's who's the, the reason that I wake up in the morning. She's kind of you know the center of my universe, and. You know, before her, it was easy for me to tackle problems more from a business perspective or from a intellectual capacity. But now having that why, the recognition that we have to leave the world a better place, is that driving force. And 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 I know now that with the what I've learned with regenerative agriculture and armed with you know the the power of Jana beside me and, and the knowledge that I have to leave this world a better place for my daughter, I'm inspired every day to get up and, and do the work that I do. Well, that is amazing. And you're definitely doing all of that. I, I really, really cannot thank both of you enough for everything that you're doing. I'm so, so grateful. What links would you like to put out there? How else can they follow your work? Yeah, Regenerative Pastures has social links. We also have our own. I'm just at Jana Breslin pretty much on everything. And Evan is at Evan DeMarco. Evan underscore DeMarco. I think there's another Evan DeMarco out there who's more popular. But follow Jana. You don't want to follow me. <laughs> She's the exciting one here. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you guys both again so, so much. Hopefully we can have you back in the future because this was amazing. Enjoy the rest of your day. 
Thank Absolutely. you, Melanie. This was fantastic. And, and again, thank you for all the work that you're doing. I, th- I think it takes a lot to amplify these conversations and, and hopefully steer people in, in the in direction that good information mm-hmm. leads. And, and, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's been fun to, to be a part of this. Yeah. You've asked amazing questions too. I loved it. It was great. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we're all in this together. So we got, we got this. Yes, we do. Yes. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Thank you, Melanie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.